you please turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verse 15 tonight. And I look back, it's been over a year since I started this evening uh, service series on Romans chapter 12. And in a year, I am still only on verse 15. So that's a record even for me, 15 verses in a year. And as you remember, my goal for this series was, was first that by focusing on a single verse, I could keep these evening sermons relatively short and not the normal 30 or 40 minute range uh, that I had in my morning sermons. And even that I many times have failed to do. But another goal was to spend a lot of time really in this rich chapter of God's word. Uh, there's so much here. It's so dense and it's it's really easy for us to overlook how much is here. If we're going through a series on Romans, we only had one or two sermons in it. But having a sermon on each verse, we can really savor it, uh, extract more wisdom from it, much more than if we rushed through it. So just to recap the context, the book of Romans is this rich and, and dense theological book. And the first 11 chapters lay out much of the doctrine that we have in the Christian church, particularly doctrine about justification, justification by faith alone. It tells us how, how as fallen sinners we can be accepted in the sight of a perfectly holy God. And it's as I say in every sermon that I preach, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone. And Paul ends this doctrine section of Romans 11 with this amazing doxology that I used this morning as our benediction. It says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then we come to chapter 12. And chapter 12 gives us the so what. Chapter 12 is where we, we take these amazing truths of the gospel that we've seen through the first 11 chapters of Romans and we put them into practice. We see how the gospel impacts our lives. And the impact that we see here is nothing short of radical. See, we've become a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. And as such, we are called to live a radically different way than we lived before. And that's what we see in Romans 12. We see the marks. We see the effects of a person who has been totally changed by the gospel. A person who's been renewed into, regenerated into a new creation. And the commands in these verses, they are impossible to fulfill apart from regeneration. They are impossible. They're totally incomprehensible for an unbeliever. And this chapter is so good. I'm going to read the entire chapter. And, and you know, in our evening service, we read a lot of scripture. We read an entire chapter of Leviticus. We read a good portion of the gospel. Well, I'm going to read all of chapter 12 of Romans, but we're only going to look at one verse. I'm going to preach on verse 15. So hear now the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophesy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, this chapter that I just read is quite convicting. This is what you require. This is what you require of your people, those who by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are new creations in Christ. We are not to act like we did before. We are to act like this as a new creation. And we know it is only possible because of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's only possible because of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I do pray for your Holy Spirit to be with me. I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with each one of us as we are listening. And Father, we pray that we will be changed by this encounter that we have with your word, that we, this encounter we have with your Holy Spirit. Lord, you will comfort us, you will strengthen us, you will grow us, and you will make us useful to bring you glory in your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our verse tonight is verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. See, sim- seems simple, doesn't it? Seems straightforward. Seems self-evident, and it is. It's God's word. It is self-evident. It's right and it's true. But like all of God's commands, it's not quite as easy when we really try to do it. There is much more than it first meets the eye. This command to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep requires something that's very difficult for us to do. It's very difficult for Christians. For unbelievers, it's impossible. At least I'm possible to the level required, not to the superficial level. And what this requires is for us to get past our natural self-centeredness, our natural selfishness, our natural inability really to, to get out of our own skin and to truly empathize with another person. 
And let's look deeper at what we are called to do in this verse. We'll start with the rejoicing, and then we're going to move to the weeping. So let's look at the three specific situations in which other people will rejoice, and we are called to rejoice along with them. The first way that other people rejoice is that they rejoice in something that we too would naturally rejoice in. We have a mutual interest. What brings them joy naturally will bring us joy as well. For example, we're both rooting for the same sports team. And that team wins, so we all rejoice. We both rejoice. And in this situation, the command to rejoice with those who rejoice, it's not difficult at all. It, it, it comes naturally. We're technically rejoicing with those who rejoice, but in fact, we're rejoicing for ourselves. It's easy. Even a non-believer can easily rejoice in this situation. The second situation is much different, though. It's much more difficult. In this situation, the other person rejoices not in something that would naturally cause us to rejoice, no, but rather it's something that would naturally cause us sorrow, cause us disappointment. In this situation, the thing being rejoiced by the other person is something that directly opposes our own self-interests. Suppose two people are, are competing against each other. If one of them wins, the other naturally will lose. We could both be competing in a sporting event, right? If your team wins or the, the other team loses, they're rejoicing, your team naturally loses. We can both be competing for the same job. You want that job, another person wants that job, that person gets the job, that person rejoices. You're miserable because you didn't get the job. In this case, the other person's rejoicing is something that would naturally cause us not to rejoice. And naturally speaking, even for the Christian in this situation, it would be impossible to fulfill this command. It would be impossible for us to rejoice with that person in their rejoicing. But even in this situation, the command is still valid. In this situation, we are still to rejoice with those who rejoice. So how do we do this? There's a third situation, an area where our self-interests really don't overlap. The, the other person's joy is independent from our joy. This could be a person getting a great job in a completely different field than we're in, winning in a sport that we're not involved in. In this situation, the other person's joy in no way will cause us harm. And we would think that this would be easy to obey this command, to rejoice with those who rejoice. But in reality, this is often not the case, even with Christians. And why is this the case? Well, sadly, in our fallen condition, we often view the success of another. We view the good fortune of another person. Even if it's success that in no way hurts us, we view another person's success as highlighting our failure. Highlighting our failure. For example, for a person who has been trying unsuccessfully to find a job or to find a spouse or, or to have children, the news of another person's big promotion or romantic engagement or beautiful new baby only highlights our own failure. Again, obeying this command and rejoicing with those who rejoice is extremely difficult in this situation. Let's now shift and look at three situations in which another person may weep. And the first, just like the first situation we looked at in another, is another person rejoices, is weeping for a common cause. So instead of our team winning, our team loses. So we're not so much weeping with another person, we're both weeping together on a common tragedy. 
Again, this is not difficult to do. Even unbelievers do this. This is natural. The second situation, again, analogous to the second situation with rejoicing, is weeping of a rival, the weeping of a competitor, the sorrow experienced in a situation that naturally brings us joy. We get the job, the other person doesn't get the job, and that person is weeping. In this situation, we may actually feel bad for the other person. We might have some compassion on them, feel some of their sorrow. But I really doubt that this compassion would would drive us to the point of weeping. It can't. Because simply for the fact that we're experiencing so much joy. We got the job. The other person did not get the job. We won. They lost. So we naturally rejoice in this situation. Yeah, we feel bad for the other guy, but we feel really happy for ourselves. Really good for ourselves. The third situation where a person is weeping, like the third situation where the person is rejoicing, is when the weeping is independent of our own situation. And again, we would think that in this case, it would be easy to follow this command. But in actuality, this case is much more complicated. See, we tend to be more sympathetic with people to whom we can identify. For example, when when Sarah was a preschooler, and I remember we learned that one of her playmates in, in preschool had died suddenly. This really hit us hard. And I didn't know the child, I didn't know the parents, but we felt the pain because the situations were so similar. We can see that happening to us. The fact that the child died made it real to us that our child could die. And the thought of this was unbearable. And in this case, we wept. We truly wept with those who wept. It's also been said about Americans during this current uh, war, the horrors of the war in Ukraine, that Americans are much more concerned than they have been in other wars because Ukrainians are European and most Americans are of European descent. So the Ukrainians look like us. Their culture is similar to us. We identify more with them than we would to similar horrors happening in Africa or happening in Asia, the people who don't look as much like us. But this command to weep is to weep with all who weep. Not just those to whom we can identify. Not just those who look like us, but to weep with all. And because in reality, if we weep simply because we see ourselves in them, we're not really weeping for others. We're weeping for ourselves. But there's an even worse reaction than this. There are times when instead of weeping with those who weep, we actually rejoice. Perhaps not outwardly, but at least inwardly we rejoice. And I'm still talking about a situation where the reason for weeping does not have a direct effect on us. It's not someone winning and we losing. And there are times when we see the failure of someone else or the sin of another person. It's making us look better by comparison. We see this especially with the sin and failures of celebrities or or people of prominence. I think this is the major appeal of the sin of gossip. See, we always gossip about something bad in another person. Right? It's, it's never done to build someone up. No one comes over and whispers, you know what I saw this person do? They gave money to charity. They were really a decent person. No, it's always saying that how bad someone is, how horrible someone is. And we secretly rejoice at the weeping of another because it makes us feel better about ourselves. So now that we've looked at these six examples of situations where others rejoice or others weep and our reaction to these situations, I hope you've noticed a common problem that we all have and why it's so difficult for us to keep this command. And the common problem is that we are focused on ourselves. We can't get out of our own skin. The problem is we can't get beyond ourselves. We can't get beyond our own self-interest to truly empathize with another person. 
as required by this verse. And the only way that we can get beyond ourselves and to truly empathize with another person, the only way we can obey this command, sincerely rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, regardless of how the situation affects us personally, the only way we can do this, and only Christians can do this, the only way we can do this is for our identity in Christ to become our central identity. Let me say it again. Our identity in Christ must be our central identity. We must see ourselves first and foremost as united to Christ. First and foremost, we must understand that we are in Christ and there is nothing more important than that. There is no other important identity than that we are in Christ. We must truly know, truly know in the core of our being that our security, both our temporal security and our eternal security, is in Christ and nothing else. It's in Christ alone, not in our, etern- not in our outward circumstances. And we must know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, in the core of our being, that our worth comes only from Christ. It comes only from our union with Christ. Our worth is found in the imputed righteousness of the perfectly holy Son of God. Our worth is not in our performance. Our worth is only in Christ. We must have that so locked inside of us, or we have no hope to following this command. And do you see how this shift in perspective with respect to our security, this shift in perspective with our respect of our worth, do you see how this changes everything? Do you see how freeing this is? Do you see how it frees us from the anxiety of basing our security, basing our worth on the shifting standards of our own performance? Or even worse, on our performance relative to other people. We have to push people down because we see them as competitors. And this naturally leads us, again, to see every person, even those closest to us, as competitors, seeing them as a threat rather than beloved co-laborers. And this shift in perspective is absolutely essential for us to obey the simple command of this verse, to to allow us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And when we truly understand, when we truly understand that our identity is in Christ, when we understand that God is completely sovereign, right down to the most minute detail of the universe, and when we know down to the very core of our being that God will sovereignly use and guarantee his promise in Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose, all things work for God's glory, then and only then can we rejoice with those who rejoice even if they're rejoicing because they got the same job that we wanted. <clears throat> because we know for certain that if they got that job, God has a better job for us. God has a, a job that will allow us to better glorify him. And if that person can better glorify God in the job, than we could do. We are certain of this. And my friends, this is not fake rejoicing. It is true and heartfelt because the reality is we are not rejoicing in the circumstances. We are rejoicing in the sovereignty of God. It is rejoicing that God runs his universe. We're rejoicing that God is God. It's rejoicing that God is so much wiser than we are. That we can trust him. We can trust him to overrule our weak, ignorant, and often sinful plans. And by finding our identity and our worth in Christ and Christ alone... We're never threatened by the success of another. Never. We see that God is being glorified in others. And in this we rejoice. In fact, by our rejoicing, 
with those who rejoice, we are actually given the, the, the privilege to participate with those that we rejoice with in the way that they glorify God. Do you see that? We even glorify God more when we are rejoicing with those who rejoice. We are participants in what they are doing. And even when the circumstances in which we rejoice are against our natural best interest, this rejoicing even further glorifies God because it gives evidence that God is doing something supernatural, something that naturally we could never do. He gives us this new perspective. And likewise, when our identity and our worth are found in our union with Christ, we can have true heartfelt, not superficial, but true heartfelt empathy with those who weep. We understand that in our weeping with those who weep, God is using us. God is using us to bring his comfort to those who are hurting, those who are weeping. In a very small way, we are helping shoulder their burden. And in so, what we're doing is we're modeling what Christ did, who took upon himself the burden and the sin and the shame of our sin, our shame, our burden. Christ who wept with those who wept. And even when we weep, even when we weep, we find joy. Not joy in our personal circumstances, not joy in the other person's sorrow, not, per, not joy that this will somehow bring our personal gain. No, our joy is much deeper and much more profound than any of this. We have joy because we know that God is using us to comfort others. We have joy because we see God's comfort and peace that passes all understanding applied to another person in the midst of their sorrow. We have joy because we know that even in the midst of our weeping, whether it's our own weeping or another person's weeping, we know God is being glorified. And this is our chief act. This is our highest goal. This is the highest purpose. And in this, we rejoice. God is being glorified. But there is an important caveat to this command, to rejoice with those who rejoice. See, we are not to rejoice in everything where another rejoices in. We do not rejoice when others sin. Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. See, we do not rejoice when others sin, even if this sin will bring them some benefit, some temporary joy, make them very happy. We don't rejoice that they're happy because they got away with something that was sinful. And what this 1 Corinthians verse shows us is that the criteria for rejoicing is not based on what's in our best interest, our personal best interest, and it's not neither what's in the other person's personal best interest. The criteria is based on God. We are to rejoice in those things that God in his word defines as good, defines as true. We are to rejoice in God's truth, whether it's found in us or found in others whether it's our own personal best interest or actually not in our personal best interest. Our priority is not ourselves. It is God. It is his truth. It is his glory. And there's one last caveat here. And this, I think, is going to be really the hardest for us to accept emotionally. See, we are to weep with those who weep. We especially are to weep over sin. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, sin will bring misery. That's the way God has designed his universe. Sin brings misery. And we're not to callously dismiss this misery as they're sinful and they get what they deserve. It certainly is, and they certainly get what they deserve. But we are still to weep with those who weep. And we can and we should pray for repentance for those in this sin. 
We can and we should, relying on on prayerful, Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom and discernment, we should confront this sin with the gospel of grace. We should call for calls of repentance. And for the person rejecting the gospel, the person spawning these calls of repentance, we continue to pray. We continue to beg God to change their hearts. We continue to exhort them with the gospel and calling them to repentance. But here's the caveat. There comes a time, and if it's in this life, the Holy Spirit will let us know when this time has come, but certainly when the persistent unbeliever leaves this world, there comes a time when we no longer weep with the weeping, with the eternal weeping of the unbeliever. But rather we rejoice. We rejoice in the justice of God. We rejoice in the holiness of God. We rejoice in the mercy of God that has been given to us, knowing that the fate of that persistent, rebellious, sinful unbeliever, despite how many opportunities they had for repentance, opportunities that were blasphemously, insultingly rejected, we know that this fate is what each one of us deserve. It's what each one, what each one of us would get would get if not for grace. It is, if it were not for our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, who while we were still sinners, sent his Son to die in our place, each one of us would have this. And he has given us the grace of faith. He has given us the grace of repentance. He has given us the grace of our union with Christ. And my friends, in this we will always rejoice. We will eternally rejoice. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you give us this ability to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Father, we know that this is not what is not natural to us. We know that we are sinful. We know that we are selfish. We know that we look to our own interest and not to the interest of others and certainly not to your glory. Father, we pray because we are new creations in Christ, because of what you have done for us, Lord, we pray that you will change. You will give us that ability. Lord, use the sacrament that we're about to receive. Use the means of grace that you have provided for us to change us and to give us that heart, to give us the heart to be able to do what you have commanded us to do. It's in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray.